Here's a few words with Jesse Bond of Southwest Fire Academy. Give me the rundown on what's coming up with SFA. Yeah, we got a boot camp starting next Friday. Big thing I want to mention today is our new website is now live. So if you haven't yet, give that a look. It's much better than our old one. Trench Rescue coming up June 5th to 9th with Tazarski. Machine Rescue June 9th to 11th and Advanced Forceable Entry with Live Fire. Those are both with Brass. And then June 26th, we have the Legacy Mentor course, which is with yourself. So looking forward to running that again. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 65 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. The phrase, we adapt and overcome, is often pridefully proclaimed, even by those that want office job predictability with firefighter schedule flexibility. Even of those that are into the job and are capable of adapting, a more true adage would be, knock it before you try it. Despite the many things that keep some stuck in their ways, Something moved us from no fire departments to the first bucket brigade to where we are today. That something continues to be the humility, curiosity, bravery, and tenacity of those that seek change for the sake of improving, even if that means changing something back. For some, it's always been who they are. For others, it may have taken experiences and the right information coming together to open up their perspective. Regardless, we should all be grateful for those members of our history and the ones that are making it today. The saying, get amongst it, which was coined in Britain, means to throw yourself into doing something. The proof and the believing is in the doing, and it's never too late. Get your gear on and get amongst it. Here's my chat with David Leesk. We always kick things off with where you grew up and tell me about your family structure. All right, well, I I grew up in the suburb of Los Angeles, uh, La Mirada. I spent 16 years there. Uh, during that time, I was involved with sports. Uh, my family was big on having me involved in sports. So I, I played uh, everything from baseball, football, basketball. And then uh, I moved on to ice hockey as I progressed and got older because my family's from Canada. And so uh, my dad really wanted me to play ice hockey. My life experience was great because my dad was just the, the working man that was a truck driver for Arco. It was just like the, the normal middle-class neighborhood, middle-class family. My dad did everything to, to support me to get me through sports. My family felt sports was important in the growing up process. So that was my life. I, I grew up playing sports. I was really heavy into baseball. And then all of a sudden, I found this thing called ice hockey, and I loved it. And then after that, it was just game on. My dad, at one point, he's like, we have to move to the north so you can get a better level of hockey. And so I, I played in uh, Southern California. And we went up to Washington when I was 16. It was a huge culture shock for me because it's just, it was different. I lived in Tacoma. It rained. I didn't like it, but I was there and I played hockey and I was like, oh, this is great. I love it. And I got to a point where I tried out for a junior C team. And at the point I got the junior C team, I didn't make it. I found out I wasn't as good as hockey as I thought it was because I didn't make the junior C team. All my relatives, there were junior A's and they were, they were playing all over in Canada and I was like, all right, well, it's time to become a firefighter now because I grew up and I was like, I want to be a firefighter. So at that point, I started playing just like a lower level hockey just because I was in school. And I was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish my high school. And then I broke my job yeah, playing ice hockey. And I was like, I can't play ice hockey. I grew up in this area, La Mirada, and I wanted to go back and graduate. And so my parents supported me with that. And at 16, I drove my little Toyota truck back to La Mirada, a family that I knew said, you stay at our house for a hundred bucks a month and uh, you teach our kids how to play hockey, you're in. So I stayed with this family. They took me in. I stayed with them for probably about two years, taught the kids hockey, went to the ice skating rink every day, uh, got a job at the ice skating rink, driving the Zamboni. And I was pretty much the everything guy, the guy who would sharpen skates, sell skates, drive the Zamboni, fix the ice. You name it, uh, that ice game rig, we did it. And so I did that and it got me through until I made it to my graduation of high school. And then at that point, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't the greatest student. Welding was my number one. Weightlifting was my number two class. And then just to get through with ceramics. And then uh, I got really good grades in those. 
But then it moved on to academics. I'm like, this is just stupid. I want to be a firefighter. I've never had, am I going to have to write a story for the fire service? Like, I, I don't want to English, math. Okay, I get the pump panel stuff. I get that. But really, this is just, I don't want to learn this. I just made it through high school. I was living on my own. So uh, there's a little bit of no direction, just like an 18-year-old immature kid partying with his friends. And he was like, I'm going to be a fireman, live the life. <laughs> and so I did go to college. I started at a real Hondo Community College. And I remember taking my first fire. I took EMT, fire science. It was fire science 101. It was introduction to fire science. And then a couple like classes like Spanish and photo. And I really did well in EMT because I, I, I was just like, I need to get out there and, and do this job. And then fire science, I remember my first class, don't remember the instructor, but it was at a time where getting in the fire service in California was just crazy. And so we're sitting in class and, and I'm looking around and there's all these guys are just the same makeup as me. And the instructor goes, how many of you think you're going to be a firefighter? I would say 100% of the room. He looks and he goes, look to the right of you, look to the left of you. Only about two of you are going to be firefighters. And that was my wake up like, wow, this, this isn't going to be an easy, easy path. And there was a little bit of me goes, all right, I need to reevaluate this. But it was like, I'm in. I completed my EMT. I finished that class. Didn't do well in Spanish. I did okay. I think I passed that class. And then uh, there was another class. I can't remember what it was because I just stopped going to it. I got out of EMT and I, I found this company called Rescue One Ambulance. I knew nothing about it. I just wanted a job. There was, there was three companies in my area and it was like Rescue One. They offered me a job. The funny thing is, is the owner of that company to this day is, is one of my close friends. And I, I'll get more into it, but my son's an EMT and, and my son works for the gentleman now. So it's kind of a, a really cool thing. So I started my EMT career. I remember it was in 1992. I was 19 years old and I started in March and I really wanted to work in Compton. I was like, I just want to, I, I want to work in Compton. I want to be busy. And so they had a station in Compton. Basically within the first week I'm working in Compton, it's, I tell this in the academy, I teach at the academy, April 26, 1992, there's a, a song by Sublime that says April 26, 1992, where were you? And I was like, well, I was at Compton and Mayo Boulevard. And that was the beginning of the LA riots. It was an experience that was great because as a 19 year old, you just like, you think you're invincible and you think uh, everything's like, you don't see the world. And in that week that I worked straight for that ambulance company, you got to see what the world was really like. And, and I've seen things that probably no one should see during that time. And my four years there, I've seen things that you, you just shouldn't see. It was also probably one of the best life experiences I've ever had. The, the group that I worked with at that ambulance company, a lot of them work for Compton Fire Department. I still know them. I still keep in touch with them. They're great people. It's been a life experience that it's been amazing. Like you keep your friends through your whole life with the fire service. And that was the ones where we, we began all making, <laughs> I tell people we made $4 and 35 cents an hour. And that was, that was nothing back in those days. I mean, it was, it's nothing now, but it was just like, we were basically 24 hours we ran 24 calls a shift. We were up all night and we were getting paid minimum wage at the time. And it was a life-changing experience, I would say. Let me touch back on a couple of things. You said your family's from Canada. Were you born in Canada or were you born in the States? Like how did that transition happen? My dad was from Canada. Uh, my mom was from South Dakota. My dad moved here probably, I can't remember the exact year, but he, uh, he came to the United States and met and married my mom in the United States. And uh, what about the injury when you broke your jaw? Was that a fight? Did you go into the boards? How'd that happen? Well, it was a little bit of both. I was a defenseman. And so I go behind the net and I came around and a guy tripped me, got a stick underneath my skates, tripped me, smashed my jaw, I, uh, got stitches in, in my uh, uh, chin. I broke my jaw. I shattered the left side of my teeth. And so I tripped and we got up and we had some words and threw some punches, but I'm pretty sure the ice is what broke my jaw, but the punches didn't help. Right. Then after that, I was like, hey, let's play. They're like, you can't play. And I'm looking down, there's blood everywhere. And I'm going to pop in my jaw. And I'm just like, ah, I guess I got to go. <laughs> so your experience in school wasn't too great. But when you finally found what you loved, you dove in. Like that was a similar experience for me. Like you ended up being valedictorian in your paramedic class, right? I did. And the funny thing is, is that was the one thing I didn't think I was going to like in the fire service. And we make fun of paramedics all the time, but that's that's been my career. I was like, ooh, I, I don't know if this paramedic thing's for me. I liked Emergency 51. I watched that if anyone's familiar with it. It was like 
that was why I grew up watching. I was like, and I think to this day, it's probably the most realistic fire show going on. And, and so I watched that and I'm like, I don't know if I can really handle this like medical stuff. I got an EMT and I really got into it. And then working in Compton, it was just like, it's just a different world. And anywhere in South Central LA, like a paramedic school, I, I went and worked at LA City for my internship. Same thing. It's just that area is a different world. You get exposed to things and you see things. It's, it's definitely uh, interesting. During the LA riots, were there any times where you felt like your life was at risk? Like, how did that go? It was an interesting time. Like, there was our, some of our ambulance got shot at. Some of them had bricks thrown at it. I don't know why. Maybe it's just stupidity. But I always had a a safe feeling in, in when I worked in Compton, and I, I don't know why. My partners, we were all very confident. We were all very good. And on the ambulance side, we had a great relationship with the law and, and the fire. And so it seemed like we were. There was times where you're like, "Oh, this isn't good," but we were always with. Uh, we're always in a group and I think it was just me being immature and thinking I was invincible, but I heard of things happening and firefighters getting shot and ambulances, like I said, getting bricks thrown at it and stuff. I never felt that way. But when I think back, there's a couple of times I'm like, that was kind of dicey. I just remember we're going in caravan with uh, sheriffs and CHP and with the fire engines and we're, we're just going down the road and, and on the side, you see police cars and all the military with all kinds of guns. I didn't even know what kind of guns they were, but I just knew it was it wasn't good. We were constantly going up this street called Long Beach Boulevard. And it was just like, we were going there to Hospital St. Francis, or we were going down Wilmington to Martin Luther King to the big hospitals at the time. And it was just, there was guns and police presence and military everywhere. So I felt safe, but realistically, I, I don't think it was safe. And there was buildings on fire and just, there wasn't enough people to put the fires out. And it was just, it was a very eerie feeling. The city of Compton or that area obviously is tinged with a lot of assumptions and stereotypes, most of them which come from people from the outside and their only knowledge of it is golden age of hip hop. Like that's where we have this perception. So working there, I mean, obviously you said there were areas that were sketchy and dicey. That's part of it. But being there that long, working there that long, like is there a different perspective you have on the community and your interaction with everybody? I loved it there. I loved it so much that, like I said, my son's an EMT right now. And I told him, I, I want you to work in South Central LA. To this day, like he's only been there a couple of months, but I get a text from him and he's like, dad, I love this job. I love working here. And I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's, I never felt in danger. Well, actually there was incidents just like when I worked in San Diego, there's incidents where there's, there's dangerous things, but for the most part, I would walk in and get my lunch somewhere and, and people were nice to me. I was nice to them and I didn't feel threatened by anyone. So I, I did enjoy it there. I liked it. It was rough when I was there. We were in the middle of drive-by shootings. There's just so many things that happened, but it was uh, it was never directed at us. It was more like, I feel like it was just more of the, the situation. The community when on the day-to-day, I didn't have a problem with it. Those instances where there is some kind of gun-related thing or some violence, that's where it, it got a little sketchy. Did the service you were with provide any counseling or any ability to sort of process these kinds of calls? Or did you do anything on your own? Was that even a thing? How was that for you? Wasn't even a thing. And the funny thing is, is up until about maybe even five years ago, I was like, I don't talk about this. And there was a point where my department was like, no, we're, we're bringing someone in. And I was, I was angry about it. I was like, I don't need that. I, I've been doing this forever. I don't, I don't need someone to tell me how I'm going to feel. And to this day, when I talk about it, I feel it helps. But one thing that really hit me is I got angry once because there was three or four of us. They're all together. And they're like, oh, you guys got to go to this PTSD or, or the briefing, I mean. And I was like, we didn't want to go. We were like, hey, we've been doing this. We've all been a long time. Two of my friends that I'm with, they're like, this is stupid. And they sat in the back of the room with their arms crossed. And then we went through the whole process and it was good. Three or four days later, I'm out PTing with, with one of the guys. And uh, I was like, man, what'd you think about that? And he goes, you know what? I'm glad I did it. And I was like, really? I'm all, I asked you, but why? Why are you? And he goes, the other day, they said it's about processing it. Like, this is the emotions you can feel after the fact. And he goes, I had that feeling. And he goes, I've never realized after the fact that that feeling was from this incident. And he goes, I actually like handled it better. It was like, I was able to process, like I got short with someone, but it was in reflection of what happened. And 
it totally made sense. It, it was like play by play how the person said it would go down. And it was like, he said it was very refreshing to him. Like, man, I, I didn't think that was going to help. And it did. So as opposed to thinking it's going to be someone telling you what to think and what to do, it's more about it connecting the dots for people. And so I think it's progressed. Like when I started, they would just bring someone in the room. I remember early in my career as a firefighter, there's a, a couple of pediatric calls we had. And they're like, hey, we're going to bring someone in and talk to you. And I'm like, okay. And they came in and they, they had no idea what the job was about. They had no idea what was going on. They asked questions that weren't relevant. And so we're, we're sitting there talking to them. And I'm, I was just like, this is a waste of time. Like, I don't want to rehash the call. Yeah, um, you know, that, that's tragic. People die. You know, like, you're like, yeah, of course they do. But there was, there was nothing about, hey, after the fact, this is what you're going to feel. It was more like trying to, hey, I'm sorry you went through that. Things happen and you got to accept it. And, but it was, it was a little more in depth than that. But it was just like, you don't even know what we go through. And so we've actually contracted with a company that's more fire service based. And it's been total different experience, like dealing with professionals that understand what we're going through. And so what was the progression from EMT to the fire service? I started off as an EMT and then that was the ticket when I first got in there. Like, oh, you're an EMT. That's your best chance. And then it was like, you probably need to go through a fire academy. So I doubled it. I went through um, Orange County Fire Authority. They had a paid call firefighter program and they had a miniature academy that I went through. After that, I was there for about a year and I was working as an EMT I decided to go to this uh, James Sheeran Fire Academy, which is our state firefighter academy at the time, and it was run in Compton. And so I went through the Compton Fire Academy, and my plan was to be a, a Compton Reserve. I worked at Orange County Fire, went through the Fire Academy. Uh, reserve jobs were just like fire jobs. It wasn't available all the time. Like now you can walk wherever you want to be, in, be a reserve. I was waiting for the opportunity to become a reserve. And then at that point, it was like, I need to be a paramedic. So I decided to pursue the paramedic and I went to paramedic school, Daniel Freeman, graduated there. And then I became a reserve at Gardena. So I moved companies because I had to quit for paramedic school. So I was working as a paramedic for Schaefer Ambulance. I was a paid call firefighter for Orange County Fire Authority. I was a reserve at Gardena Fire Department and I was testing all over the state. I couldn't tell you how many times I took a test. It was in the hundreds and the lines were long and I was spending the night in parking lots. I was driving up and down the state, Santa Barbara. I think the furthest I went was Sacramento, I believe was the farthest. And then uh, down South, I was going to San Diego, just taking test after test after test. And just like it is now, you go to the first one and I look like a dum-dum. I was just like, I didn't answer questions correctly. I didn't know what was going on. And there was even a point where I started testing for the police department. I, I tested for uh, Long Beach Police Department and LAPD. And I, my next step was the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, but they weren't, they weren't testing at the time. But then at some point, things started coming to light because I got better at interviews. I was probably at five or six departments I had tested with at, at one point, And uh, I finally got into backgrounds with a, a department in Santa Barbara. Didn't really want to go up there, but I was like, I'll take whatever I can. I was in the process with Santee, which uh, I had to sacrifice my best friend for that. I was in his wedding and he's like, my wedding's this day. And I had a test with Santee and it wasn't even a done thing. I was like, Hey man, I can't make the wedding. I have physical agility. And he's like, it's my wedding. I'm all, I know, but it's a physical agility. And so ended up taking physical agility and I work for Santee Fire Department now. So I got a background with Los Angeles Fire Department and I got a background with, actually, I was in the process with LA County Fire. I didn't have a background. I was in their A band and they're like, oh, you're going to, you're going to get called any day, which I did three years later, but I didn't decide to go. So I was getting all these background offers. And, and like I said, finally one panned out for me and I ended up at, at Santee Fire Department. I've been there ever since. What was the academy experience like? Well, for Santee, since you got to have a fire academy before, it was just a three-week academy. Now, back in my firefighter academies, the, the PCF academy was long. It was every weekend. And by this time, when PCF, I was married at the time. I got married real young. My wife was 19. I was 21. So she's been with me through all this. The PCF academy was just every weekend. I would be working and then I'd go to the, the academy on the weekend. And it, it was strenuous, but it wasn't bad. It was, it was doable. But the Compton Fire Academy, that was 
life-changing. It was like the military. Like they were yelling at us at that time pagers were in and there was like, hey, don't bring your pager into class. And some guy had his pager in class and it went off. And all of a sudden we're doing push-ups on the black asphalt. It's a hundred degrees, blisters on your hand. And you're like, oh man, this isn't fun. That was definitely one of those academies where it was like we PT'd every day. It was very strenuous. There was even times where you're like, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to make this. This is, this is tough. That was my academy experiences. And how were the rookie years? At Santee Fire Department, Santee and Lakeside Fire were the first paramedics in San Diego County. So they have very high standards for paramedics and also have high standards for firefighter skills. When I went to Santee, I'd, I'd never thrown a one-person 28-foot ladder. A 24-foot was, was what we threw. And I struggled with that thing. And I could not throw that ladder. I could do everything else. My paramedic skills were good. There was a high expectation. So I did struggle with my paramedic skills because different counties, different protocols. And so I definitely struggled with that. And then it was just like this 28-foot ladder. I was like, man, I think I might need to drop out. I'm, I'm not making it here. And, and I had a captain. There was a train captain pull me aside. And he's like, hey, man, go home. Think about things. Come back with a, with an attitude. You're going to make it. Just, just keep on plugging away. I made it through that three-week academy. And I don't know if he's going to do the 28-foot ladder. But at that point, I threw the 28-foot ladder every night, all night for hours until I was perfect at it. And I was at that time, I was the best. Now I'm old and a little rusty, but I'll still get up. No problem. But the other thing was, is we have what were called mini drills. We liked that Santee liked to mimic a lot of things that LAFD did and mini drills were one of them. And it was basically a, they call them mini drills, but they're really maxi drills because we'd be given a topic like ladders and you got to tell the station about your ladders. And there's always someone with this trivia that they knew that you didn't know. And so you're, you're giving your spiel on, on a ladder, like it's a 28 foot ladder, it's 87 pounds, two sections. These are your dogs, these are your paws. And then, and then you go through your whole spiel and then they would ask you just some weird question. You didn't know it. And then it would just turn into like a feeding frenzy on why are you such a dummy? So it turned into maxi drills. And, and then it was just like, okay, who could see, who knew the most about the ladder? But I appreciated that because I did learn a lot. Like at the time I was like, this is stupid. I remember in my paramedic time at LAFD, I remember the same thing. I had a mini drill on uh, medical equipment and there was an engineer that came in from a neighboring station and he was an EMT. And I gave my spiel on innovations and he asked me this question that was just, just like, I don't even know where it came from. I don't even remember what it was. I was so traumatized, but I didn't know the answer. And he just reamed me out like I was just a moron and he's an EMT and how does he know this? And I was just, I was devastated, but I don't know. I think those are the, the experiences that make you grow a little bit too. Like when you realize that, I don't think it was spiteful. It was more of a game. Uh, once I got that, I thought it made me grow. How did they want you to throw that ladder? Was there a specific technique? And did they explain to you why you were doing single firefighter throws with the 28? I think it was just a pride thing. And it, it still is. We still do a one person 28. I've been a training officer. They did show us techniques and it, it was more about getting the technique down. It's like you had to choke up on the ladder. And if you didn't choke up on the ladder, I'm only five, nine. And so if you didn't choke up the ladder and you're five, nine, things not going up. If you're able to like choke up on it and you, and you get your right balance points, it's the easiest thing ever. But for a six foot person, it's like, mm, technique's not very important. For a five, nine, it, it's extremely important. And I just wasn't getting the technique. Once I got it, it was like, oh, this is easy. But were you carrying it high shoulder? Yeah, high shoulder. We basically go through the rungs and, and you just walk the rungs up your shoulder and you can just, it's not that hard. It was just technique. It was all technique and, and I just wasn't getting it. So how did you get into instructing? I love the fire service. Once I got in, I was sold. I tell people this day for my career in the fire service, I've taken at least two classes a year. And for the most of my career, it wasn't supported. It wasn't like, hey, you get the time off or or we'll, we'll give you like overtime to go or anything. It was like, you take your time off and you go. And so for years, I, I went to um, two classes a year at least. And I always tried expanding myself. So when I started, I just went with the basic stuff. Like, I don't know if it's throughout the, the States, but rescue systems one, it was very basic rope operations. Then we went rescue systems two. And then I do an auto extrication class and it was just building my knowledge. And then I went and I loved it because there was a couple of factors in it. One is, knowledge. And then the other thing was meeting people from all throughout the state and seeing how they do it. That I think is 
the experience a lot of people miss out. They stay in their, their hometowns and they just see how it's done in their hometown or their home county. And you, and you go out and you go to a class in a different county or even a different state. You see how things are done. It's great experience because you just learn it from different aspects and different theories. And I've loved going to classes. I just went to, begrudgingly, I went to a class called Nuzzle Forward the other day. Great class. And I was just doing it because I'm like, I'm 50 years old. I'm going to be on my knees all day. They're even telling me to bring knee pads. This is going to be horrible. I did it and loved it. It was great. I enjoyed it. Some great concepts. There was a great instructors. And if anyone ever sees them coming to town, this isn't a plug they didn't ask me to, but it was a great class and, and I learned a lot from them. So even an old guy that's been in the fire service for 24 years, I've been in longer than that, but with Santee, 24 years and I'm 50 years old, getting on my knees and crawling around was a great time. Shows sure you can still do it. I think there was a point where uh, a couple of the guys I went with are like, hey, you need help up? I'm like, no, nah, I got it. I got it. <laughs> what topics are you specifically instructing? Do you have favorites or do you have ones you're certified in? I used to teach a lot of confined space rescue. We have a regional fire academy. I'll go in there and do basic stuff. But I really enjoyed the confined space rescue, trench rescue. And I started to go the path of, of rescue. But my department, at one point, we had a rescue. So I felt that I, I can work on a rescue and I would have those capabilities and then it started to be we got rid of our rescue and just got an engine and i felt like well if i can't work on something to hone my skills maybe it's not the path for me we had a confined space program for the region and that was closed down so it was like i'm not into this anymore so i'm gonna let the people that do it every day teach it i think it lends credibility and so now and i'll be honest with you i like working with kids because i see that spark in their eye like you go to a firefighter class and you teach it, you get guys rolling their eyes or they're like, I know this or I know that. And you go into a fire academy and you're dealing with kids that are just excited about being in the fire service. And you see that scared, hungry look and you're like, I just, I love it. I love helping. I love helping them and, and watching them grow. And I've seen a couple of them get hired at my fire department and it's just, it's great seeing it. So I've, I enjoy working with the kids. Do you take a different approach to instructing than the style you were given through your academies? I used to have that maybe a little abrasive style, but over life experiences, and I'm sure we'll get to this, I changed after I, I was diagnosed with cancer. Totally changed my perspective on the world. It changed my perspective on the fire service. It, it just changed. And that was one of the crowning moments where I became a different person on the drill ground, at the fire station, just everything. It, so no, I, I've completely changed, but I did have that at one point. I look back and I'm almost embarrassed of it now that, that with my life experiences. So do you feel that now you approach it with a balance of high expectations, but more supportive? Is that how you're taking it? Yeah. One chief came up to me when I was teaching a fire academy and he's like, Hey, I noticed you teaching the recruits on ladders. And he goes, it was more like a fatherly approach because I wasn't like screaming at him. I wasn't, I was just like, Hey man, you got to do this. Try it again. Try it again. Hey, do this, do this. And it wasn't like, it wasn't that intimidating factor. It was more like that you got to get this job done and we're going to stay here and do it. But on the same token, I'm not going to uh, sit here and yell at you and make you feel bad about yourself. We're going to make this go up and you're going to do it on your own. I think that's my, my approach now is more like if you embrace somebody and, and you just show them that you're like, you're there to help them. It seems like they flourish off of it. So I, I have changed in that manner. As opposed to you suck, suck less. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that was a horrible evolution. Do it again, do it better. And they're like, what do I have to do better? I don't know. Just do it better. And so, yeah. I asked you and the questions I sent you about guides and mentors and maybe their influence on you. Maybe that's a good place we can talk about that now. I've been so fortunate in my career and I hope I don't miss out on this uh, because there's just so many people that have had factors in my life. But I'll start off with the ambulance company, Brian Shishido. He was probably, I think he's 10 years older than me and he owned his own ambulance company. And when I met him, he was the nicest person in the world. He's actually the person that introduced me into the Paid Call Fire Academy. He's a guy that's been to all my graduations. He's supported me and uh, he's just like a super person. And when I talked to him just recently, I'm like, hey, my son's in EMT. He, he would, I would love for him to work in, in South Central. He was like, well, it doesn't get any favors for me, but we're hiring right now. So send him down and see if he can make it. And my son made it. It's just a, a person that's a lifelong friend and he's been like just a super great person. So from the other end of the, the fire service, the, the guy we talk about that I don't want to say demean me, but it was like, it was a hard road. I went to PCF, the pig call fire. I met this gentleman named Bill Smith. 
he worked for Cal Fire and he was just an old school Cal Fire guy. And it wasn't, it was very interesting. Like this guy is to this day, I attribute everything to him where I'm at because he's the one that molded me in the fire service. And, and you do need somebody that, that keeps you in check. And he was the kind of guy that was like the fire engines leaving in five minutes and it was leaving in three minutes, but he said five minutes. And if you weren't on that fire engine, it was taken off without you. When I first met him, I'm like, man, this guy just, this guy is hard. He's riding me, but I, he made me who I was. And to this day, I, I still talk to him. Uh, he's a great person. He's, he was supportive, but not like in a coddling sense. He was just more like, get the job done. And I was just uh, very regimented. I just appreciate the guy to this day. Moving on from that, I was uh, remember my Los Angeles fire department group. I was very lucky. I went, I went to a slow station. It was, it was in Brentwood. So if you're not familiar with the area, it's where Nicole Simpson lived, where OJ Simpson lives. It's, it's a high end. And so I met some of the greatest people. So first off, that my two preceptors, Mark Gilchrist and, and Russ Rentoff, once again, these guys were from the old school, but they loved the job and they came in, they're happy, they had fun, and they messed with me the whole time. I slept through so many calls. They just had so much fun with me because at the time, the paramedics would get a phone call to go on calls. And so I, I was sleeping away from the phone and they'd be next to the phone. They'd get the phone call and the paramedics would go without the engine. And so they'd get these phone calls and they would sneak out and then they would go to the call and then they would call for the engine. So everyone would wake up and see me. I slept through a call and uh, man, these guys, they messed with me so much. But this guy worked for 30 years in the LAFD. When I was there as his intern, he would take overtime in busy areas and I would go work there. And so we worked all over Los Angeles. And in the daytime, he would switch us, be in South Central and run calls. So I'd get my, my contacts. But I got, I can't lie, we went back to Brentwood and slept all night. So it was, it was a great internship. But Russ was a guy that he worked for, I want to say 30 plus years. He always loved the job. And I took so much from that, like, because he would just come in and, and he would run on some of the worst calls. And he was like, I run on horrible calls, but I go back to my wonderful life. He's married with two great kids. Matter of fact, his son worked with me on the job in Santee for a couple of years. And so I got to work with his son. So it was kind of a, a neat thing. But in that station also, there was a, a fire captain at that time. And his name is Dean Ulrich. And he, he ended up becoming the assistant chief for uh, LAFD, I think at the airports. And this was a guy that all through my career, even up to this day, when I've had questions, I'll call him. And he helped me with interviews. He helped me like just mold me. And it was, it was a really cool experience, like being outsider from LAFD and uh, building friendships there because you didn't hear that, like going to LAFD. It was like people went there. A lot of times they were miserable because it was hard and then they left and that was it. But it was a great experience. And I got so much from all those people at the station. They were just amazing individuals. Then I just have to go into the part where uh, I got hired at Santee Fire Department. My fire chief is like, this is a gentleman that hired me. And I remember him looking at me and he's like, his name is Chief Fole and he's still a chief in, in San Diego County. He's been around forever and just a fantastic person. And I'm in an interview with him and he goes, so David, I see you're from uh, Los Angeles. Are you going to move back up to LA County and work for them? And in my mind, I was like, yep. Totally. <laughs> I'm like, chief, no, sir. I'm a, you hired me and I've worked, I've tested a hundred places. The first person gives me a job. I'm dedicated there for life. Well, it turns out I, I didn't lie, but in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm out of here, chief. But anyways, thank you, chief. Cause uh, he uh, put his trust in me. And, and this is a gentleman that still does the firefighter combat challenge. And he's, I, he's got to be in the sixties. I couldn't tell you for sure how old he is, but is a gentleman that just keeps going and it is an inspiration of the fire service. Those are the the people that like in my foundation of the fire service. And then I think I even, I talked to you once before about my dad is, is pretty interesting as a truck driver. He's mentioned over the years how he saw changes in management. It was one thing that stuck with me is my dad just being a, a hard working middle-class guy that, that got me through my childhood and, and worked every day. And he tells me stories about like when he was uh, when he was a truck driver, and, and I thought one was interesting. And he was he was talking about a time where he uh, was broke down, and he didn't think uh, he could make it over the hill. But a supervisor showed up, and the supervisor was like, "Hey, you think you make it over that hill?" And he's like, "I don't know." And the supervisor said, "Well, let's give it a shot." He jumped in the truck. They made it over the hill. It was over in Ventura area, and it really stuck with me my whole career about like leadership. And that was one of those leadership lessons where I thought was really cool because it talks about a guy that had the knowledge, see if they can attempt something. And then on top of that, to jump in the truck and go over the hill with them. And I was like, I would love to see that in the fire service. I think uh, in the fire service, we, we base our, 
our stuff on education and education is important. I have a bachelor's degree. It took me a long, long time to get it, but I do believe education is important, but I think leadership and knowledge, just experience goes a long way. And I think we're losing a little bit of that in the fire service. That's a different story to tell, right? And you mentioned that his company at one point started hiring, they were more focused on education than they were on operational experience and not having both. And you said that was detrimental. I think we all say you can read it in a book, but books change and the operational experience of understanding what's happening and being able to help someone, I think that that goes further than anything. It's pretty amazing when you have someone that's, first of all, willing to tell you like, hey, let's try this, but they'll also go through it with you. I, there's some great people out there and, and I'm sure it still happens, but I hope I'm that person. I do see a lot of influence on just education, 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 which is 100% important. I mean, we consider ourselves to be professional and, and to be professional, you should be educated, but there's also a thing for experience too. You mentioned there about going through things with people. Your wife and yourself have been through quite a bit over the years, like you talked about early on, but some physical challenges. So when you walk me through, you mentioned earlier about your cancer diagnosis, your wife struggled as well. So maybe walk me through how you guys journey through that. I've been dealing with a sickness for a long time, but I was intimidated by it because I knew it was something really bad. And so finally, around March of 2015, I started to go see a doctor and I finally had the courage to go, hey, doctor, you think this is cancer? And he was like, no, I think it's diverticulitis. And he goes, I'll never forget this. He goes, he said a term that I hear people say now and it drives me crazy. He said, when you think you hear horses, don't look for zebras. To this day, it's, it's bugged me because I'm like, I told him, I'm like, hey, I'm a firefighter. We have an increased incurrence of cancer. He's like, no, this isn't cancer. And so I went from like maybe March going through some just like, hey, take these pills, you'll feel better. And it kind of made me feel better. And then finally in September, he's like, oh, like, if I send you in for a colonoscopy? And I was terrified of that question. I was like, uh, no, you haven't. And so he referred me to this doctor. It was September 28th, I believe. I would go in to see this doctor and uh, he feels my stomach. He goes, you're coming back for a colonoscopy tomorrow. And I was like, oh, sorry, I'm working tomorrow. I can't do it. And he's like, no, no, you're coming back tomorrow. And my wife's like, no, you're coming back tomorrow. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm working. And so came back the next day, called in sick, came in back the next day. And I just remember going for the colonoscopy and, and uh, waking up and, and getting that, that terrifying news that no one wants to hear. And I just remember waking up and him saying, you've got cancer. And I was like, Hey, you don't know. You have to send out for a biopsy. You don't know. He's like, Oh no, you have, you have cancer. Like you 100% have cancer. And I was like, well, what's the process? And he goes, well, we're, we're going to send you a surgeon. And so let me back up a little bit too. While I was going through the sickness, I knew I was sick. And I remember when I was coming home, one of those last days. So Santee is on the Eastern part of San Diego County. You go over a hill and you drop in and you look over San Diego on this, this freeway, 52 freeway. And I remember dropping down that that hillside and looking at San Diego going, I knew something was bad. I'm like, this might be the last time I uh, drive home from work. And maybe this might be the last time in my life I ever see this view again. And it's one of those things I just enjoy when I when I come home. It's like, I come in, I look at San Diego. It's beautiful. I see the ocean, head up north and, and uh, I'm happy. And so that was one of those things where it was like, all these things are coming in on me now. I'm like, okay, I've, I've cancer. This doctor says it's bad. I'm going to a surgeon. And then I, I finally, I thank God I had my wife. She was the rock because when I went to the surgeon, the first thing he said, he's like, oh yeah, you, your cancer is out of control. You've got like a softball in your stomach. And he's like, you could literally need emergency surgery in the next 15 minutes if, if you're blocked up. He's just like, it's bad. We're going to give you a colostomy. And I was like, whatever it takes to save my life, let's do it, doc. And, and my wife's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Let's, let's talk about this. Through the process, we found out I didn't have to have a colostomy. Thank God. I'm going through this process. And, and it was just like every week, it's like the insurance wasn't improving it. It was literally, I think, I don't remember the days exactly, but right around the middle of October, the end of October, I finally got scheduled for surgery, got my surgery and got it all out. Once again, it's like, I hope no one ever goes through that. Like just, it's just horrible because there's that waiting time of like, all right, we got the cancer out, but we don't know what stage it is. And we're going to have a game plan, but we, we need to know what's going on. So that waiting period. And so during this time, it was really nice because I remember I was on the job and I started calling sick and, and there's people that were like, why is Lisa calling in sick? Like he never calls in sick. 
I've called in literally sick once in my whole career and prior to this. And so I don't, I don't call in sick, like something's wrong. And so finally I, I told my best friend, John, I was like, Hey, I have cancer. He was a battalion chief. I'm all, can you do me a favor and tell people that I don't want to hide it, but don't call me. I, I can't talk, but text me. And if someone wants to text me, I, I would love it. Our 48 members, I would say 42 of them sent me text messages constantly like, Hey, just thinking of you, like, this is great. Like, this is, it was an awesome feel of support. The group of firefighters got together. They got a maid to take care of my house so my wife could take care of me. And they're always just like, hey, what do you need? What do you need? I'm a little ways away. I live in an area called Temecula, so I'm, I'm about an hour away. And people would be like, you want to come up and mow your lawn? You want to do this? And I didn't because I have a community that took care of me, too. There's a sheriff's officer that was friends and family. He'd come over and mow my lawn. And so it was it was so awesome to see the support of the, the fire service and, and my, my friends in the sheriff's department. It was just, it was amazing to see the support I got. But on the same token, it was it was terrible. I was going through this thing. And during this time, I was going for presumptive cancer claims. And it turned into, into like a long battle and, and it's still ongoing, but it's not anything that's bad. I think it's just a process. We understand that cancer is presumptive, but we also have to understand that there's a process. And, and it took me a long time to realize that because when when I got out of my surgery, I had to go through chemotherapy. And it was pretty interesting because at that point, the uh, I had to deal with lawyers and the lawyers are like, hey, you got to come in for a deposition on your cancer claim. And I was like, okay, uh, but I can't make, they like, it's Tuesday. I'm like, I can't do that. I, I get chemotherapy this day or this day and I have to do it these days. And it was like, well, I don't care. You have to be here for that day. And I'm like, well, I have chemotherapy. I was like, well, I, I don't care. Reschedule it. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. This is like this day as I need it within these hours because I have to have this other one later in the week. And it was like, well, figure it out. And so working with my doctor, I did figure it out. And we were able to like to make it work. But I, I remember it was like I walked into this lawyer's office and I, I went to meet him and, and I stood up to shake his hand. He just walked in, sat down. And it was just all business. And it was really interesting because I'm like, he's asking me these questions, just like all business. And then at the end, he shut his computer and, and he goes, I think the court reporter stopped writing it. And it wasn't anything bad, but this is when it, it came to light. He goes, hey, just so you know, your claim is going to be denied because we, this is a process. And he goes, I don't think you're a bad person. And I've listened to your story. And, and he was like, so don't take offense to this, but just understand this is a process. And we, and we, we stood up. He was finally personable and he shook my hand. And I was like, all right, now I get it. It's a process. And so that's why I've been going through the process as far as the cancer claim. So back to my story, though, is after that, I went through chemotherapy, met some great people in the hospitals. It was actually refreshing to go through that, that process and maybe even made me better in patient care because I've been on the patient end of things. So I understand what goes through when, when people give you an attitude or when people don't and when people take that extra time. I went through the whole cancer thing and made it through chemotherapy. And I was lucky enough to come back to work a year later. And this is like the thing that was uh, is very touching to me. One of my good friends, Aaron Doe and, and John Sagenbush, they, they put on a uh, taco thing for me to come back. And, and the department came in. We had a taco. All families came in. And it was an amazing experience. And then what really touched me is at that point, so I tell you, it's a process about the cancer claim you still rack up medical bills and thank God I had good insurance and I never called in sick and all these things was all like in my favor. But at some point I got some medical bills. I was just talking about like, I was more of like, I was trying to school my coworkers, like don't call in sick man, because it's important to have your sick leave because you have to do this. And I'm all just look at me. I never called in sick and I still had like $10,000 in medical bills. The firefighter, Adam Daniels at the time, he was behind me and he took it upon himself to do a GoFundMe page for me. And just the, with people in the department, like it wasn't even outside. It didn't go out to Instagram or anything. It was just within my department, pretty much my medical bills were paid for. Wow. I was a person that didn't believe in brotherhood at once where I was like, and that's just a whole different story. Like I do believe in brotherhood, but I think there's different levels and I think there's different stuff. But at that one point I was like, I, I knew who my brothers were and I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And so I was lucky enough to have their support and I make it through. So you, you talked about my wife. So she was my rock during this whole time and she stood by my side. 
I tell the story at the academy, like there's weird things that you do when you have stuff like this. There's so two things. Well, this wasn't weird. My wife would go in the closet and cry every night. And I didn't know that because she just came in, she was so strong and she was just amazing. And I don't know if they know this, but during the time my, my daughter was in college, my son was, was pretty young and I would shave with the electric razor because I couldn't use a regular razor because cuts and, and the chemotherapy you get infection. I'd take the, my shaving droppings, this is weird. And I would go in the corner of my, my room, my kid's room, and I would put a little bit of my shaving droppings in there in case I didn't make it. There was going to be a piece of me with them. <laughs> this day, I'm like, what a weirdo I was. But it was an interesting time to go on to this process. My wife needed me at one point because literally two years after my diagnosis, she got breast cancer. During this time, I'm like, man, how's this happened to us? We're, we're actually, we're pretty healthy people. We run half marathons. We just ran one like last week. I PR'd on it and it's like, this is like something we've done for 30 years. We, we eat salads. We, we cook our own food. We do not eat out. We're like, we eat healthy food at home. Like, how does this happen to both of us? And there'll never be an answer. I mean, I, I believe mine's from firefighting. And, and I also have some like, well, do, am I bringing contaminants home to my family? And so that's something we'll never know. But it was one of those experiences where I was like, we have to go through this again. Luckily, I was on a good path and we had to get through it together. And, and I'll tell you what, my wife to this day is, is my best friend and we've been through uh, so much and we continue to do stuff. And it's been an amazing road. Like you, I think of all the bad things, but on the same token, we're still alive. I'm not going to play the lottery because I believe I won it twice with me and my wife. So uh, I'm pretty lucky. You ran a half marathon when you were going through chemo as well. Huntington Beach, it's a half marathon every February and I've done it. This year, I believe, is our 15th year. So at that time, it was I was somewhere around the 10. It's been seven years, so about halfway uh, through my, my time here. And I was like, hey, doctor, I'm going to run the half marathon. And he goes, you can't. And I'm like, no, no, I, I got to. And he's like, no, you're <laughs> on chemotherapy. You're going to get infections if you get blisters. You, just, you, can't, you can't be exposed to that many people. And I was like, well, respectfully, I, I guess we'll have to fix that problem after the fact because I'm running the half marathon. And to this day, we joke about it because I go see him all the time and love my doctor. He's just an amazing person. But so we went and we did the half marathon. We had a, a friend from Temecula that would run it with us for the first five or seven years that we did it. They went with us and, and I walked a lot. Uh, I didn't run like now I run because I couldn't dehydrate myself. But it was like run. And then I do remember at that last mile, I, I looked at my wife and my friend and I'm just like, I'm not ending it this way. So we, we ran the last mile for sure. And that's our thing. And we're going to continue to do that half marathon until I can't. Expand on your take on brotherhood. I know you sort of skimmed over it there, but give me your perspective. So I work in a small department and we all have some people that maybe aren't as popular as others. And we talk about a brotherhood and that person experiences some difficulties. And all of a sudden, your brothers at your fire department will just out you like not out you but like oh that guy's a dummy he shouldn't have done that and and so on and so forth because he's not in on the in crowd but then you have a guy that you have no idea about like who he is or what he does across the world and something bad happens to him you're like oh, our brother we got to take care of him and i do believe that i believe you have to take care of him but i know nothing about this person i'm willing to give them everything where there's a person i work with every day and it's like We'll be like, ah, oh, no, heck with that guy. I hope he, I hope he leaves our fire department. And you're like, wait a minute, that's our, our brother. He's like, we go to work with him. He lives with us. He eats dinner with us. He's our brother. Sometimes you don't like your brother, but he's still our brother. We pick and choose our brothers. And it's like, no, there's either we're all brothers or we're all not. I use that term very selectively. And it's not because I don't disrespect people because I understand that there's a brotherhood. And there are like, you send out a thing and a firefighter sick, the brotherhood comes together and takes care of them from departments. And, and, and it's a great thing. And, and I'm proud to be a part of it. But I also I have a problem with like, when your brother in your department is like, Oh, no, I hope that guy leaves. It's like, No, he's your brother. So help him. And I think that's where when I had cancer, I think that's what changed me is, is I was like, No, you have to care for people too. like, just because they don't meet your standard, we all have our different standards in the fire service. And I had bystanders, and I still do, but I can get somebody to that standard or at least to be the best person they can be. That's what I need to do. That was my changing in, in life where I was like, I think at one point I might've been that same person where like, that guy calls in sick all the time. He, uh, he abuses this. He doesn't do good on calls. He's just not, I don't, I don't want him to work for my fire department. But it was like, 
well, did I do anything to help him? Or did I find out why that was happening? Is, is he being like that because he's having issues at home? And, and we all have to understand there's, there's deeper things going on. And, and so, yeah, that's my take on brotherhood. Did you have any mental health support through the cancer treatments? No, I didn't. I did come back and I'll say my wife was my mental health support. She was amazing, but I, I didn't have it professionally done. And sometimes I'm, I might regret it. I did have, when I came back, there were some anger issues that I had. And I had a couple of friends reach out to me and ask me to go to uh, some things. And, and I didn't, I think it's stupid. It's more of a, a pride thing for me, which is 100% stupid. I, I don't support it, but it was more one of those things where like, I beat cancer. I can beat this all. It's taken me a long time and probably had some rough roads that I didn't need to have. I'm ashamed of my take on it, but I, I didn't. There was a couple of times I reached out, but it was kind of half-heartedly. Like we had critical stress debriefing and, and the, one of the persons were there and, and I pulled them aside and I said, hey, I'd like to talk to you about this going on in my life. And, and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, let's do it. And then it turned into like scheduling interview or scheduling a time and then it didn't work out and then COVID hit and, and just all that stuff. And, and I, I didn't follow through with it. Has anyone come to you through your career in the service and were you able to support anybody in that way? I think so. There's been quite a few people through my career where, and I think this was after my cancer actually, where I was more receptive to it, where um, a couple of friends where I've, I've noticed that something's going on and I'll, I'll pull them aside and say, Hey, what's going on with you? A lot of times they'll tell me, Sometimes it's marriage, sometimes it's life, sometimes it's kids. And I've always been able to go, hey, man, go see this, this service that we provide. And a lot of times I'll follow up and be like, hey, did you go see them or did you do this? And 99% of the time I'm told yes. I'm not privy to that, that information, like on what they do or how they do. But I have, I have had quite a few people where I've helped. And it's funny because I even stipulate with, hey, I'm going to tell you to do something and I'm a hypocrite because I haven't done it. And I go, but I've learned from it and I want you to do it. And I think that's maybe what even gives me a little credibility on it where I go, I screwed up. I know I screwed up. I've had many things in my career. You need to do this for you, for your wife. I care about you and your family. You need to do this. And 99% of the time it happens that they go see help. So I have, I think. Do you have retirement in your sights? Do you have a age in mind? I always say two bad days. So at California at 50, I have, I have the program where I can go out at 50 years old. I just turned 50. And so I, I could go right now. I do love the fire service. There's very little times where I'm like, I don't want to go on a call. Even on the worst call ever, I still love going on calls. But I do know it's time that I have to start taking care of myself. And I, I don't want to be that person that is, uh, hey, he retired at 50 and he died at 52. So um, I'm trying to balance that out right now to get to my maximum time service where I, where I benefit. I have to go about five years. I'm not sure if I'll do that. But it's definitely uh, within that time frame. I, I will not stay longer. That's for sure. I've seen people stay way longer. And, and I would love to because I believe this is part of our identity, being a firefighter a little bit. And I, I really enjoy like just going to work and having dinner and going on calls. And, and I will miss that tremendously. But there's a time where you have, to, you have to let it be and let the younger people take over. So I, I can see it happening here in the next three to five years. What's the two bad days mindset? It's kind of a joke that we do at work and not that any day's bad, but some days you come into work and it's, it's one of those struggles where you're like, I really wanted to be home. Things don't go right. And you're just like, ah, that, that bad, that's a bad day. And it's like, I don't want to be to the point where I hate coming to work. And so when I get to the point where I'm like, I'm not enjoying work. And, and if it's two bad days in a row that say I'm not enjoying work, I probably need to let some people that enjoy work come to work. But so far, not yet. So far, not yet. I, I do love the job. It's a, uh, it's so great. I, uh, like I said, I went to that nozzle forward class, and I don't know if I was the oldest guy there, but I'm pretty sure I was at the top of the oldest guy. And I'm just seeing all these firefighters uh, working, and it was just such a cool profession, such a it's an amazing job, and I love it to death. And it's going to be really sad when I have to give it up someday. Like with that class and other classes, do you very often find they switch your perspective on techniques and tactics and do you then implement them in the way you do business? Sometimes. It's funny, the nozzle forward, I don't know if you've been to it, but the instructor brought up is, he's like, man, sometimes I have a hard time teaching anymore because it's like the terms are the same, but they change over the years. So you're like thermal layering and all that stuff. It, it changes terms. And you're like, am I saying an old term? Am I saying a new term? 
And so that gets on the frustrating part, but like, this is a perfect example. I went to nozzle forward going, I don't have these nozzles. I don't know why I'm doing this, but I went and I learned some techniques and I was able to like take our crew out and train on it. And uh, we, we found some stuff that works for us. And maybe someday when we get those nozzles, it would be even better. But I do try to implement whatever I can get because whatever you can learn makes you better. And it's funny because I use this term and it was made fun of, but it's another tool in the toolbox, but it kind of is. It's like, I wouldn't have known anything about the nozzle forward skills until I went. And now I know, and, and I'm going to implement the things that work for me. And it's great. So going to classes and learning new things are good, but I also try not to get caught up in that. Like in the fire service, there's always like this new way of doing something. And it's always like, you go through the class and everyone wants to change the world in a day. And it's like, well, wait a minute, that's just like, that's that person's perspective. And so let's see if that works for us or let's see if like, if that's even possible or do we even carry those tools? There's always that, that self balance of like going to a class and learning what you can use and also going to that class and going, well, that's, that's really cool, but I need to know more about it before I actually jump in head first and do it. What do you think's kept you all the way through your career not having that arms crossed pushback about this is the way I do it and I'm just going to stay with it? What kept you going to classes? I did love going and learning stuff. And for the first part of my career, I did come back from classes. I'm like, oh man, there's this new tool. We got to buy it. We got to buy it. We got to buy it. And what is really cool in a small department, I do have influence. So I can come back and be like, hey, I went to a rescue class. There's this thing called a grip hoist. I want to buy a grip hoist. And if we can get it, we get it. So that that's kind of nice. The thing is, I could come back and if I felt it was appropriate, I could implement it. With Santee Fire Department, I was a training officer for 10 years, and then I was in charge of PPE, and then I, I become a training officer again. And so I think it's my job to go out there and, and look at stuff and actually bring stuff. To be closed-minded, it just it, uh, I think it makes it go back in time instead of progressive. And so that's been my whole my whole process is just try to be progressive. And you think overall the fire service is better than it was when you got on? Yeah, I think so. I think you can go overall. Yeah, there's some things that maybe disappoint me a little bit sometimes, but there's other things where I'm like, man, this is way better than it ever was. And so there's always a give and take, but for the most part, I think the fire service is doing great. What are some of the shifts that concern you sometimes? One of the things I've always preached in my career is the day you complain on a call, it never gets better. And so I see it happening more and more where someone goes on a call and then it's like, oh, I went on this homeless person and oh, I hated it. And it, yeah, the, the call wasn't fun. Like, I don't, I don't enjoy it either. There's aspects of it, but it's like the day you complain about it, the next one becomes worse and the next one becomes worse and the next one becomes worse. And that's what I see. It's like the more people complain, the more they get frustrated with their job. And it's like, man, this is such a great career where like there's nothing that I could... I can imagine working for the, in the fire service to see when people get down on their careers. It's, it's like, that's kind of a choice that you've made. It's, it's not the fire service. We've always went on calls that weren't fun, but if you enjoy it, it's easier to get through the day. And that's one of the things I, I do think there's some great stuff out there. Like we see all this training coming out. So I do think for the most part, we're, we're on a better path. And just seeing all the leadership and, and stuff that go through all the classes that are put on, um, there's a lot of great stuff out there. That's an interesting perspective, and, and that does definitely does happen where people start to get picky about the calls that they say that they would be willing to run and would enjoy, right? And the, the pickiness just seems to get worse and worse. Like they wish they could tailor the job to themselves. Exactly. And, and I just remember, like I, I told you, I worked for $4.35 an hour at an ambulance company running 24 calls a shift. And I just remember looking at firefighters and being like, oh man, they, they like, they have the greatest job in the world. They're not like, they're not sitting in an ambulance all day. They go back to a fire station. They, they eat dinner together. It's, it's like this, this really cool job. And you know what? If they call me at two o'clock in the morning to pick someone up off the floor, well, I'm going to do it. And you know what? That person needed my help because they were on the floor. So it's just like, that's part of my job, but it does turn into like, oh, we got up and we had to pick someone up in the middle of the night and yeah, it wasn't fun, but you always have to take yourself back to that day where you're, you're working for $4 and 35 cents and you're dreaming about the job. And I have seen where maybe that doesn't happen as much as the fire service is so desperate for people due to retirements that sometimes people go from like, I graduated high school, I got a college degree. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm making pretty decent wages with good benefits 
And so they don't have that time to refer back to making minimum wage and sitting in an ambulance all day. So that lack of gratitude comes from just from the lack of experience and perspective. There's plenty of people that have, have went through that process and appreciate the job, but I do think there is a part of being able to like realize that at one point you didn't have it like this good. And you have to look back to those times where you dreamed about this job and then you will respect it more. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? I think I've said it a hundred times, but this has been such a great career and I've met some amazing people. And actually, I want to thank you for doing something like this. It's, it's amazing that people are out there trying to better the fire service. It makes me proud to be a part of this group, a part of this brotherhood. I can't wait to see what the future brings to the fire service. My, my son's in it. And I'm excited for him, hopefully, to have a career in it if he chooses to. People that are contributing to your show and, and, and shows like yours that I, I feel that there's a great future in the fire service. And, and thank you. 